Good morning, everyone. Um, if you could please stand with me and pull out your Bibles or your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back table. Um, those are for you to take home and keep if you don't have one already. Um, we are going to put my Bible down, I think. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 9 first. verse 6, and then later in John 12, 12. So first, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now we're going to flip over to John 12, 12. All right. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done that, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth um, and dies, it remains alone. And if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my son, is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from the heaven. Um, 
Uh, then a voice from the heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, be lifted up. Who is this son of man? Oh, the life, the light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before then, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my authority, but the Father who sent me himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father, he has told me. Come on, give it up for Lindsay. That was a lot of scripture reading. All right. As you heard, uh, we are both in John and in the midst of the Christmas season. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 12, and we are going to be looking at that text primarily today. Uh, Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry, Merry Christmas. I'm so excited to be teaching this morning. As I said earlier, Steve is teaching at another church, and I'm honored to open up the text with you guys today. 
Now, John chapter 12 is a really interesting text because it is kind of closing one part of John's narrative and opening up a different one. So up until this point, John chapter 1 through 12 has taken place over roughly three years, and it's taken place mostly in, in like northern Israel. And there's lots of stories, there's lots of healings, there's kind of miracles and signs and interactions with people, and there's lots of crowd moments. And if you guys have picked up on some of that in the narrative so far, there's lots of teaching to the big crowd, feeding a big crowd, signs in front of a big crowd. And what we have in John chapter 12 is a bit of a shift in the narrative in a couple of different ways. One, Jesus comes triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. And at that moment, the narrative pace changes from kind of stories over time, over the years to about one week. So John chapter one through 12 is taking place over a couple of years and it's all over the place. It's these huge crowds. And John chapter 13, we zoom into the last week of Jesus and short of the crucifixion and resurrection, all of his teachings and interactions are reserved for his disciples. So we kind of go from his public ministry way out there and it zooms in to some of these last words he has with his disciples takes place over about a week. And how Jesus comes into the city is quite important. And it's one of the reasons I had Lindsay also read Isaiah chapter nine, because in Isaiah chapter nine would have been one of those texts that a good Jewish boy or girl might have been thinking about when they're thinking about the Messiah. When they're thinking about this promised coming victor who would finally liberate them. There were all sorts of these quote unquote messianic texts in the Hebrew Bible or what we know as the Old Testament, specifically throughout the prophets. And that would have been one of them promising the kind of person we could all expect this Messiah to be. And in all these texts, we start to build an image of who this coming Messiah might be. And we, just like the Jewish people in Jesus' day, may fill in some gaps on our own. And what happened in John chapter 12 as Jesus is entering the city is the Jewish people had a very specific picture of who this Messiah should be. It was a heroic picture. It was very much a political superhero kind of picture. So what comes to your mind when you think of a hero? When you think of like a superhero or a king or a good leader? We, maybe like some of the Israelite people, might think of King Saul, who was super handsome, super tall, super buff. Like, he looks like he should be a good leader. He looks like he should lead men into battle. We might think of like a Disney hero, right? Prince Charming, gorgeous, you know, always gets the lady, always has that chiseled jawline. Or we might think of like a Marvel superhero, someone who's endowed with either incredible powers or incredible abilities, people everybody else looks up to. Now, I've never heard a vision of a hero from Disney or Marvel or anything else that has the hero being this short, kind of pudgy, balding, middle-aged person. They're usually the anti-hero or a sidekick. Often in our stories, we like to idealize who those heroic figures are. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day were no different. They had a pretty specific picture of what this messianic hero would look like. 
The expectation would be the tall, dark, handsome, riding into Jerusalem on a white horse, collecting all the, the men of Israel to conquer finally the domineering, tyrannical Roman Empire and to set Israel free for good. This is what they wanted. It's what they expected. It's what they were hoping for. And in the hundreds and thousands of years since Israel had been its own kingdom, all of that hoping and all of that wanting had culminated in some pretty specific expectations for this Messiah. And so as Jesus comes on the scene and people begin to wonder if he's the Messiah because he's teaching all these incredible things and casting out demons. And now at John chapter 11, bringing someone back to life to like, I wonder if this is the guy. It's good logic, right? I wonder if he's the guy. They expect him to raise an army, to lead them to a great military and political victory. They're waiting for him to fulfill all these promises of a victorious king. And earlier in the gospel of John, after Jesus fed the 5,000, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Do you remember his response as he fled? He ran away from that. They had been waiting and watching and hoping for this powerful and victorious king to swoop in and rescue them. And now he's here and they've got the palm branches ready to go. They're ready. All these people who've been watching and waiting finally see someone who might be that Messiah. Now, before we move on in the narrative, it is important to remember, especially at a time like this, how often do our expectations miss Jesus? How often does Jesus miss our expectations of him? Where we might think we're, we're meant to have this happy, sort of comfortable life, or because we start following Jesus, things might get easier, and suddenly those expectations aren't met. Maybe COVID this never-ending thing of ours that we're living with has been this expectation buster of the Christian life. Maybe it's been the disruption of gathering that's happened, the ever-changing rules around masks or no masks or large groups or small groups or whatever. Maybe that has messed with your view of Jesus. Maybe it's just some prolonged moments where you've had to rely on your communion with Jesus and not the communion of Jesus through other people in front that's messed with your expectation of Jesus. Maybe it's this like intertwining of the weirdness of politics and religion in such a way in this moment right now that's messed with your expectations of Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, I thought Jesus was supposed to fill in the blank. I imagine we all probably have four or five things immediately at the ready. We're not so different than the Jews welcoming in King Jesus, finally hoping for the kind of victory we want that will satisfy us, make us happy, make us comfortable here and now. The narrative that Lindsay read for us starts in verse 12, saying there was a large crowd that had come to the feast and they'd heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
There's a couple of types of people who are here. His disciples are still traveling with them. And verse 16 clues us in, they really have no idea what's going on. But then there's also two other groups of people. There's the crowds. And there are some in the crowd who had seen what Jesus had done with Lazarus, that he had raised him from the dead. And there are some that had heard that he had raised somebody from the dead. And they all show up in a, listen, in a proper biblical response. Nothing about how they respond in the triumphal entry is out of place for who Jesus is. They rightly recognize him as king. They rightly recognize him as Messiah. What they get wrong is the implications of that. What they get wrong is that his kingship and kingdom looks quite a bit different than they were hoping for. But they are dead right that they should be on bended knee with palm branches singing and saying, Hosanna, the king of Israel but they're here. They're honoring the victorious king. And this Hosanna is this word that means save us now. And it implies that he can actually save them. Finally, all the waiting is over. The Messiah has finally come to save Israel. And this waving of palm branches wasn't just like enthusiastic Sunday school praise. It was like a statement of nationalistic pride. But Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem as a political, economic, or social advocate for Israel. He came to establish a kingdom reign over all nations and all people, including Israel, including Rome. A reign of grace in the hearts of his followers and a reign of peace over all he has made. And everything they say has these messianic overtones. They recognize Jesus for who he is. He's the anointed king. They're not wrong. However, their understanding of his kingship is far too narrow, far too short-sighted. John has shown us on a few different places, specifically in chapter 6 and 11, that the Jewish people wanted a political leader. But Jesus' coming supersedes any political concerns of their day, ours included. But there's another group that's here. It's not just the disciples who don't really know what's going on. It's not just the crowd who think they know what's going on, but the Pharisees. And we have this little line in verse 19 that the Pharisees are chatting with one another. They see what's happening and they say, you see that you're gaining nothing talking to each other. Look, the world has gone after him. They think their plan is shot. Picture the scene for just a moment, like the disruption, like a parade-like atmosphere. Jesus coming in on this little donkey. People are bowing down. He's got his entourage of disciples behind him. The Pharisees see all this and think their plan is totally ruined. They've been trying to kill this guy for a long time. And finally, he's coming to them, but the response of the people tells them, this is not gonna work, guys. The people in the crowd are looking to Jesus as this victorious, political, military king savior whom they honor. And then his disciples, totally confused about this itinerant rabbi they've been following for a few years. And think about how the rest of the narrative in chapter 12 totally confounds all three groups, totally upends all their expectations, confuses a lot of them those who thought they could write him off, those who assumed he would fit their mold, and those who thought they had Jesus figured out are all disrupted. And what we have in the next sort of movement of the text, verses 20 through 43, is he immediately starts confronting the crowd, including his disciples and the Pharisees listening, with some really hard teaching. 
You notice when Lindsay was reading some of that text, it was like, oh yeah, this is great. It's like, oh wait, what? What about the seed going into ground and dying? What, what's happening here? What's going on? What about, you have to hate your life to really have it? Hold on, this, this doesn't sound like the Jesus we expected. And so he says things like, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Which up until then, he's been saying the hour is not now. So for his disciples who've been hanging around him, this is kind of like a trigger. Something's about to happen. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it bears much fruit. And he goes on, verse 25, whoever loses his life, or whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Then in verse 32, he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, the light is among you for a little longer. While you walk, while you Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Will you have the light? Believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Hard teaching after hard teaching, after confusing teaching, after confounding teaching. And we see in the narrative, some believe, some don't believe. Some are more interested, some are less interested. Some walk away and some cling closer. But Jesus' teaching here is not for naught. It was to fulfill another prophecy. Because even though there's those in verse 37 who's saying, I'm not sure he's the Messiah, they still did not believe in him. But these words were spoken to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah. But some did believe, many in fact. But it's not quite like all the way belief. Because John tells us their belief did not actually manifest in any kind of followership. Look at verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So notice what's happening here. Many believed, but they were fearful. They did not want to be socially ostracized and they preferred getting glory from others versus glory from God. I wonder if we can find ourselves in those three things. Maybe what is stopping us from fully devoting ourselves to Jesus is just straight up fear. We don't know what will happen because suddenly we're not the one in control anymore. We're handing over control of our lives to somebody else. Do we actually trust he is good and he will come through? Maybe we are just petrified of the social ostracization that comes with following Jesus, particularly in our time and our place. How afraid of you are getting lumped in with those people? I don't need to name those people for you guys to know who I'm talking about. How petrified of we are we coming out as a follower of Jesus because people have all these preloaded assumptions about what that means. 
And maybe a reason we do not fully devote ourselves to Jesus is we prefer the accolades of others. We prefer getting the credit ourselves. We prefer getting the glory ourselves. Rather than receiving identity, value, worth, and satisfaction from Jesus. Because when we do that, it flips everything upside down. And suddenly getting accolades, satisfaction, and value from other people are far less important. So which means our mental, spiritual, emotional well-being do not ride on the circumstances around us. But if we prefer getting glory from others, they definitely will. And maybe you've experienced that over the last few months. The constant up and down because things are going well or things are going awful. And your emotions ride on that. Maybe you've experienced some relational distancing from people because you're actually serious about following Jesus and they're not, or they're offended by that. I think we can find ourselves here in these couple of verses. And I wonder how often that would actually describe us, unwilling to actually listen to Jesus and do what he says, because, quote, we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The reality is Jesus is going to present us with two options. Either I've attached my identity and meaning and purpose and inner sense of well-being to the earthbound treasures of the kingdom of self or to the heavenly treasures of the kingdom of God. We were just in our Advent reading uh, just the other day with Calvin and Truman and Emerson. We were just talking, do you guys remember this? About the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. I'm going to put you guys on the spot here. In the kingdom of self, who's in charge? Yeah, yourself. And in the kingdom of God, who is in charge? Yeah, God's in charge. Guys, they got it. How often do we not have it? How often do we try to grip control back from God? Here's a couple of self-diagnostic questions. The absence of what causes us to want to give up and quit? The pursuit of what leads us to feeling overburdened and overwhelmed? The fear of what makes us tentative and timid rather than courageous and hopeful? The craving for what makes us burn the candle at both ends until we have little left. And the need for what robs us of life's beauty and joy. The truth that Jesus presents to us is without him, we want to give up and quit. Without him, we feel overburdened and overwhelmed. Without him, We are tentative and timid rather than courageous and hopeful. Without him, we burn the candles at both ends, not getting anywhere. And without him, life is robbed of its true beauty and joy. But often, we swap in some other things in the kingdom of self. Without money in the bank, without stable family relationships, without friendships, without a new car, without owning a home, without lower taxes, fill in your thing. 
We all have it. And the reality is, in those diagnostic questions of what wants us to give up, what has us feeling overburdened, what has us feeling tentative and timid, or needing to work the candle at both ends, or not seeing the beauty and joy in life, is when we swap in something or someone else for Jesus. When it's the kingdom of self, not the kingdom of God. Now, the Christmas story is the good news of Jesus saving us from ourselves of Jesus saving us from the burden of self-glory and self-kingship. It's the folly of the kingdom of self. Jesus brings us access to life and life to the full, John says, records Jesus saying in John 10. And maybe it's this reason with such urgency in Jesus's final words to the crowds, he says this in in chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus cried out, and yelled. This is last huge speech to the crowds that are here. He cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but the one who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, which is an echo of Jesus's uh, self-proclaimed mission in John chapter three, verses 16 and 17. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this echoes his birth as well that Sherry was reading for us with the kids. And as the angel comes not only to Mary, the angel comes to Joseph as he is panicking about this pregnant future wife situation. And the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah chapter seven. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is the ultimatum Jesus presents at the end. God with us or not, you get to choose. He presents the listening crowd. Either you will find life in me or not. You will walk in darkness. Either I can be your source of value and satisfaction and sustenance, or you can carry the weight of those things on your own. And he reminds us at the very end that this was the Father's plan all along. And he says in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. He says, I've not come to judge, but the one who rejects me does have a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, echoing things he said over and over again so far. But the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. Jesus is saying, I've come to be God the Father, represented to you, God in the flesh. This is the incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel, 
saving us from our sins. And this is available to all of us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, which is us apart from him. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and he has come as the victorious king, but not in the way they expected, and often not in the way we expect. What are some of the ways that we expect Jesus to be king? Is it, honestly, to make your life happier, more comfortable, to make you healthy, wealthy? What does Jesus as king look like? That Jesus comes as king, upending all our expectations, is at the heart of the Christmas story. Jesus comes not as a fully grown man-God thing, but as a baby, vulnerable, tender, in a barn, not in a palace. The first to know and to come honor this Jesus are not fancy people from fancy places. It's the shepherds out on the hill. And in the same way, his birth confounds our and their preconceived notions of who Jesus the King ought to be, so does his death. It's through death that comes our salvation. It's through death that comes victory over death. It's through death comes life here and into eternity to the full. And it's through death that comes life eternal with God forever. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, and defeated death in the resurrection for you. Thank God Jesus is not always as we expect. Thank God he confounded their expectations and is often confounding ours. If God, if Jesus is exactly how you imagined, always agreeing with you on everything He's probably not so much the real God, but one of your own making. Thank God he confounds our expectations. Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, Jesus himself. In the language of John 1, 14, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So as we head into what for many of you guys is a busy week, Lots of presents, the tree, travel, family, friends, parties. I want you to just pause and consider for a moment, what are your expectations of Jesus? They can be big and grandiose. Think of like your life expectations. You can think about these big theological things, or you can think, what is your expectation of Jesus for this week? Do you have any? What are your expectations of Jesus? How might he be confounding them this Christmas season? It's been said that human beings are kings and kingmakers and kingdom builders. Today, will you work to build the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? Whose kingdom will it be? believe this is the question that is forced upon us after encountering Jesus in this triumphal entry text. And as we sit in the Christmas story this week as well, whose kingdom are we looking to build? One kingdom is not going to be fancy and it's not going to be flashy. It's not going to meet all the world's expectations. The other one might surprise you quite a bit. 
What are your expectations of Jesus? Seriously consider the question. Don't let the familiarity of the Christmas season rob you of this moment to consider what you actually believe about Jesus and how that might change your life. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to continue singing together. Jesus, we just sit humbly, quietly in this moment. Maybe an honest confession of how we've heaped expectation upon you that is not true of you. We confess, not only have we expected things of you that you do not provide, that you did not intend, but in the absence of those expectations being met, we've swapped you out with something or someone else. And maybe not so much with words, but with actions, we've said, fine. If Jesus is not going to make me happy and wealthy, I am going to pursue what does. We just stand here in a moment of public confession saying, no matter who we are in the room or what our story is, we have all done that. We confess that is not seeing you rightly. It's actually heaping things on our own shoulders we were never meant to carry. Jesus, I ask for your freedom today the freedom that comes from enjoying your grace and your mercy and your kingship. I pray as we worship today that this would even be a moment of elevating you as king and proclaiming we live in a different kingdom. I pray as we consider what our life is like that we build our lives on the things of you, not the things of us. Jesus, help us remember that you have come to be with us And you are the right and true king of our lives. And as we sing together, I pray, Jesus, you'd be gracious to meet us in this moment. And if we need moments of conviction, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd kick us in the butt. If we need moments of comfort and consolation, I pray that you would meet us here tangibly. If we need to be encouraged and bolstered so we can head out into this week, Jesus, I pray that you would provide what only you can the strength that you supply so we can go and be who you've called us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.